Heavenly Father, as we get ready to dive into your word, oh, it's just such a, such a um, really encouraging word, a reminder of, of, of your grace to us in Jesus and your love to us, perfectly expressed in Jesus and really the power of Jesus to transform us. And so um, we pray this every week, and I never want to stop praying it. I, we we want to be challenged and stirred and convicted, and we, we want to go from this time, um, really, just... Uh, uh, our relationships flourishing better and our relationship with you and, and, and wherever we find ourselves. But what we want most is, is not, a, not a to-do list, but we want to leave this time more impressed with King Jesus. And so would you just make him profoundly loud to us as we prepare to study um, your word in First John. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, wherever you are, um, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. First John Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. This is God's flawless word. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Feel free to grab a seat. We're going to ask a couple of questions about um, these first verses. Uh, really, the first one, though, is like, what is the command? What is the commandment that, that, that you have heard from the beginning? And we, we get some help here down in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides. It's, the, the command is to love your brother, love your brother and sister, to love other people, to love those people. We could, we could say it generically, just to love our, our neighbors, to, to love those that God puts in our path. Um, but really specifically, it's to love those people that God has put next to you in your church. We actually get some more help from 2 John. Um, 2 John verse 5 says this. It says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. So the commandment is to love one another. And now we ask some other questions. And, and it's, this is like one of those that kind of made me smile. I love when the Bible does it. It just makes it, I just think sometimes John's like, I'm going to write to you. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment that you've had from the beginning, but also it's a new commandment. And it's kind of like, well, what's going on? Is it old or is it new? And John's answer is it's both. It's both old and it's new. So let's ask like, in what way is it old? And in what way is it new? Um, the old command that you had from the beginning, there's a few options for, for what it might mean for it to be old. It could be old in this sense, that the command to love and to love your neighbors and to love those around you goes back to the very beginnings of the Bible. I mean, the very beginning, and it permeates the Bible, the, to, to love the Lord your God with your heart and your mind and your soul and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is a constant refrain all through the Bible. Another option in it being old is that the, the, the call to love others 
um, is not constrained just to the Bible. This, this permeates um, many, many, if not all, major world religions and, and, and cultural perspectives and secular humanist approaches to, to life, as it were, to love one another. And so some would say it's an old command because it's as old as is, is creation, just this idea of, of love. And, and both of those statements are, are true um, to some, some regard, uh, but, I, but I think there's something else going on in this passage. And what I want to do is draw attention to, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but then look at this, but an old commandment that you had, that you had from the beginning. The you there is talking to a church and he's saying you had this from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard, um, that you had from the beginning and the word you heard. John is saying, what John is saying is that the command to love one another was not a later addition to the Christian life. It was at the very beginning of it. When you came to faith in Christ, this, this resulting activity of loving those around you was always there. He's not adding something into the faith. It's not an add-on in the Christian life. And in many ways, loving others is the defining ethic of the Christian life. We could say it this way, nothing is more primary in the Christian life than loving God and loving others. Everything ends up getting summed up in those two statements. We see it in 1 John 4, a bunch about love. We see it in 1 John 3, 11, where it says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Um, love is so incredibly vital to the health of a Christian, the health of a local church. It occurs, the word love occurs at least 24 times in 1 John. It's a really big deal. One commentator that I read, he, he, he was talking about the importance of, of love in the church. He compared it to like the cardiovascular system or the circulatory system of the human body, which is, is uh, your, your heart and, and blood and arteries and, 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 and veins and capillaries. And, and, and really this commentator, what he says is that the, the idea is this is the heart pumps and it's carrying blood and, and, and nutrients to every nook and cranny of the body. If, if the circulatory or the cardiovascular system shuts down, you die. And then he applied it to the church. He says, if, if love in the church ceases, the church, it dies. It's, it's that foundational. So when John says it's old, he's saying it's that important. It's, it's been around from the beginning. But then in verse 8, he says, at the same time, it is a new command. So in what way is it new? Um, the word new is really important. In, in Greek, uh, there's a couple different words that can be used for, for new. One of them has a sense of chronology, so it's time. It's, 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 it's a progression of thought or it's a progression of arrival that it's new in that way. But there's another word, it's the word that's used here, and it doesn't mean new in terms of chronology, it means new in terms of quality. That there's a, there's a, there's a newness to the quality of love that has now shown up. It's a type of love. That's what's going on. Um, before we talk about where that comes from this text, let's just define love and let's do it using another part of the Bible that is one of the best descriptions of the word love that's used in this text. Because love is it's not, in this use of the word, it's not, it's not an emotion, it's an activity, it's a, it's a disposition in the way that we approach others. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. What I want to do is put that definition now into this verse. And we have this really interesting phrase here in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new command. It's a new quality of this love that's been revealed that I am writing to you. And then this phrase, which is true in Him. What it's saying is this quality of love is true, most gloriously displayed in Him. And if you trace back the in Him all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 2, it's talking about Jesus. It's saying this, this new quality of love is most gloriously displayed in Christ. So what I want to do is I want to take 1 Corinthians 13. I want you just to, to listen to who Jesus is and what He is like. We pull from 1 Corinthians 13 and we say it like this, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus never fails. This love, this, this quality display that is most true in Christ is most gloriously seen at the gospel, the, the, the good news of, of God who, who, who gave Christ for, for people that were running, people that were enemies, people that were rebellious, people that were indifferent. And, and we see it most gloriously on the cross that Jesus went to. When he went to the cross after being spat on and scorned and scoffed at and mocked. And I just think about Christ and the kind of love that it must have taken to stay upon that cross as people were mocking and taunting him and, and you have this phrase where, 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 where Christ living the life that we we're called to live and he's dying the death that we deserve and he's on this cross and, and there's darkness over the land and people are jeering him and, and, and he just cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? And the, and the answer is love. He was enduring all things that we as enemies might no longer be enemies but reconciled back to God now as as Friends. that he might be abandoned, that we might be brought in. He experienced darkness that we might be brought into a kingdom of light and we could go on and on and on. I mean, this is who Christ is and it's saying that, that this new command that we are called to live our lives and it's, it, it, it's, the, it's displayed, seasoned, uh, declared by the work of Christ to come in and to give his life, to die for us while we were still enemies and still sinners. Still rebels. That's the kind of love that's being featured in this. Four years ago, I read um, a book the, the, called The Round of a Country Year, a farmer's day book by uh, a guy named David Klein. He's an Amish uh, farmer in Holmes County, Ohio, and it's his journal through five different seasons. So it starts in fall and then goes through fall again. Basically, it's just these little diary entries of what's happening on the farm. And there is in it, the, the, um, the foreword was by Wendell Berry. And there's something in that foreword that's always struck, struck me and has continued to stand out to me. And what it's about is this insight about um, 
how the Amish people would handle technological innovations that made that promised to improve life. So how did they sit? They're not anti-technology, but they're, but they were they're asking some different questions, and this just really this really stood out to me how the Amish would evaluate technology that was offered. Wendell Berry says it like this: He says, "The Amish had the genius." or the wisdom to ask the absolutely crucial question, what will this do to our community? The Amish have accepted entirely and wholeheartedly the radical neighborliness of the gospel. The dominant question that controlled their choices is what will this do to my neighbors? That's that really in some ways God is giving us in 1 John this one command and it says I'm giving to you a commandment, not even commandments. He's giving, it's like one command to rule everything. One dominant question. We could maybe say instead of like what will this do to my community, say how will this help me love my neighbor? How will this help me love others? I, I love the simplicity of that in a confusing world. You know, what, what a gift when I speak is the way I'm speaking loving. When I disagree is the way I'm disagreeing loving. When someone hurts me is the way I respond loving. When I'm angry is what I'm doing loving. When we live amongst each other, is it loving? And before we look at how that command is hard to follow, because it's really simple, it's love one another. Some challenges, before we get to the challenges, what I want to do is I want to camp out in verse 8 a little bit more and look at some really, really stunning hope. Um, God's love in Jesus is remarkable, and God's love through us is actually possible. That's what verse 8 is saying. It's saying, at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, and then listen to this, and in you, and in you. It's true in Jesus and it's true in us. This true in us, what I'm saying is that, that the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ can actually flow f- through us to the world. We can maybe summarize this, this passage this way. Those who are loved well can learn to love well. Those who are loved well can learn to love well. Scott Sauls in his book, Befriend, which I would highly recommend, says it like this. We must become convinced Right, he was talking about, well, first we got to start with we are loved. He says, we must become convinced that love has to be a person to us before it can be a verb. We got to be loved well if we're going to love well. The order and quality of this love cannot be overstated. 1 John 4, 8 through 10, we'll get here. At the pace we're going through 1 John, we'll probably get here by 2030. But 1 John 4, 8 through 10 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God Because God is love, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and set his son to be the propitiation for our sins to take God's just judgment upon us, to become our offering before God to reconcile us back. That's love. 1 John 4, 19 just simply says this. We love because he first loved us. The order and quality of Jesus' love cannot be overstated. We gotta keep the order right. We love because we first have been loved and we continue to be loved. It's like, like, apply the gospel personally. You know, just pause Think about how you've been loved. I'll think about like how I've been loved. And ask for God. 
didn't seek God, didn't want God, lived in defiance to God. And yet Christ in his love gave his life for me that I might be with God. Those who are loved well can love well. There's so many examples of this in our church. Like, I love it that the love of God is possible through you. I mean, that is, that is just mind-blowing. But we see it all the time. We see it all the time. Our church is full. We, we could go for days and days and days, weeks, maybe years and years, talking about how you all love each other. I'll just give you some examples. Let's think about one gospel community where they, they pooled some of their resources to buy a laptop for another person in their gospel community so she could finish her degree. Thought about another gospel community that actually pooled their resources to buy a car and then help to uh, uh, get furniture for uh, uh, someone's apartment. It was a single mom and a kid so that she had a place to live. Thought about someone else in our church. Recently, their basement flooded. And as soon as people in the church found out, they showed up at their church, they jumped into the water in the basement, they began to try to like bail the water out. And then, then someone else in the church actually went and made them a massive gift basket with all sorts of snacks and food and a bottle of wine and games for the kids. It's small stuff, small stuff. I mentioned during a sermon a number of years ago that I was just re- I was feeling really sick. And by the time I got home, someone had put a gift bag on my front step of just Gatorade and soup. You know, huge stuff. Uh, I'd asked the staff, I said, hey, can you think of ways, you know, ways that you've seen your church love each other? And, and Dane Burgess, he goes, man, just tell them what they did for me when, when, with, with Lexi, um, when they were going off to Philadelphia for four months to live there for all these surgeries on, for, for Lexi. And, and they said, without the church even asking, we didn't make some big upfront ask. They said the church, oh, like overnight, gave us over $30,000 to pay for all these expenses. Recently, there was a young lady that became, um, became a, a Christian. She was part of our church for a number of years. They'd moved away. She became a Christian. She's like, I really, really want to get baptized. And so, uh, and so we, wanted to, we wanted to videotape. We wanted to celebrate. We wanted to include us. So, so um, one of the people in our church, he goes and he gets a COVID test, and he gives up an entire Saturday to drive down to set up cameras so that, so that we could celebrate this baptism. Those who have been loved well, man, they can love well. Think about you know, how some of you have opened up your homes to others. You, you've provided homes either temporarily or permanently for, for foster kids and, and adoption where you've just opened up your homes and really you just opened up your hearts. Now you think about this, this is the rhythm of the gospel that we were orphaned and, and God came not to just forgive us but to adopt us into his family and you're living that out, you're playing that out in your homes. So you welcome people in. Think about not people just opening up their homes, but loaning out their homes, literally providing places for others to live because, because there, something happened, whether it was a fire in their house, whether it was flooding in their house, they had nowhere to go, or loaning out your cars. Think about one story of uh, someone's surprise paying off all the medical debt of someone else in the church. The other day I ran into someone and we were just talking about prayer. There's a group of moms, they just get together and they just pray. They pray for each other's sons and daughters. They pray for each other's needs. They pray for each other. They pray that they would meet Jesus. They pray that they would be strong in the faith. They just pray and pray. Redeemer, you are a church that loves well. Those who are loved well can love well. 
God's love through us is possible. Let me give you one more thing. This past week, um, it was really encouraging to study this, this passage that, that I, I can love like Christ because I'm loved by Christ. That, that was a really, really encouraging thought, but there was actually something else that was even more encouraging to me, and it was, it's these two phrases at the, the last part of verse 8. Um, the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. I've just had to pause this past week and map that phrase, map those two phrases on what's happening in, between Israel and, and Gaza. So you watch this, this animosity, and I'm getting all the causes and history and all that. I'm just, just, just the loss of life the loss of image bearers and the destruction. And, and, and I've had to take this verse that the darkness is passing away and the true light, it's already shining, that the kingdom of, of Christ, that his, his light is infiltrating the darkness. I really had to think about it in, in light of the, the children that have lost their lives and, 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 or, or the children that are just fearful of losing their lives. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be a parent and try to like run interference as the bombs are happening so that my five-year-old can go to sleep and know that I'm completely helpless. And I just to say, I, I, I looked at this verse and I, and I, was so, uh, I was so encouraged because I thought this hate won't win. Darkness won't win. Love will prevail. The love of Christ will prevail. You map this verse on everything. Like there is real conflict between people in our church. It won't win. I put it on, on my side. There is real conflict in my heart. There is a battle between love and hate and light and darkness. And here's the, the truth of this passage. The darkness won't win. God's love can be through us, but, but here's the great news of a text. God's love is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. And that's a really good reminder because it's hard. Because <laughs> loving's hard. God's going to win, but it's still hard. Um, something true I think this is true. Something true of every command, every single one, is that it's summoning us to do something we don't initially want to do. That's why we're commanded to do it. It's not something that we're maybe inclined to do. Now we can, over time, be conditioned and, and trained, and we can grow in this, and we can actually begin to delight in God's commands. As we get later in 1 John 5, it actually says His commands are not burdensome. In Christ, they become beautiful to us. But, but initially, at least, every command is given to us because it's what we wouldn't normally do, hence why we have to be commanded. Um, for example, my, my wife, Katie, she loves chocolate. Uh, it's, um, and so every night... Every, and I have permission to share this. Every night she gets into bed and, and right before bed she has a little ramekin and she's got a pile of chocolate chips in her ramekin and she snacks on that every single, every single night before she goes to bed. I think it's absolutely adorable. Um, Katie does not need a command though. Thou shalt eat chocolate. She just doesn't need the command because she wants to do it. But we need the command to love because it's not what we would naturally be inclined to do especially with those that we don't like and people that we disagree with and people that have hurt us and people that frustrate us and people that have dismissed us and people that annoy us. We'll look at two reasons um, I think it's particularly difficult to put this into practice, to love our brothers and sisters, to love those in our local church, to love those that are right around us. It's incredibly countercultural, 
and it's personally very costly. It's countercultural. You know, I don't know why I do this. I don't know why I do this. I'm sure there's something broken in me for doing this, but I, um, I, when I look at tweets, I like to read all the comments and replies to the tweets. So I'll just scroll through. I know it's, it's self-inflicting pain, um, but I'll just go and I'll just read all these comments. And, and through COVID, you know, I'd never followed Governor Inslee before, but because there's all these updates happening all the time, I would follow his Twitter feed or I would jump on his Twitter feed a couple times a week just to see what else had been announced. And so I would go through and I would look at the comments and some of them very supportive of decisions that were, were being made. Um, some of them, you know, uh, frustrated or disagreeing, but doing so in, in uh, reasonably thoughtful ways. Some of the responses were just funny and they'd make me laugh, um, but some were heartbreaking. Yeah, I remember one in particular, um, the, the response, the, the little comment back, it was, it was just two words and then a, a finger. Um, and, it, and I imagine you can guess it wasn't like, good job, you know, with the thumbs up. Um, it was two other words and a finger. Here's what was heartbreaking. Is the comment was made by someone who in their little Twitter handle name had a couple of crosses. And I looked at their bio and, and I, can't, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was something like, Jesus is my Lord and I love him. I remember seeing that just thinking how, how dissonant that is with this passage. To love one another. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He endures all things. He believes all things. It'd be nice if that's the only time a Christian on social media had said things that weren't loving, but it's not. I imagine none of us are surprised that someone representing Christ would act in an unloving way. I know I act in unloving ways. And part of the problem is that we're swimming so much in the cynicism and the slander and the gossip and the, and the glee when others fall sort of culture, the rage and the mockery, that it feels like sometimes Christians are just losing their heads and really what they're, they're losing their hearts. We're just acting the way culture acts. And, and that's verses 9 and 11 here. It's saying this is this, this kind of stark language of John. Jesus said, like, if you're with God, he's, he's a loving God. You're going to love others. But if you're, if you're walking in the darkness, you're, you're lying to yourself. And Christians, for sure, we can stumble and walk in, in darkness. And that's what happens. We get derailed and our culture doesn't have a culture of love. We, we love those that are lovable to us through our own grid, but we don't love our enemies. But Christ came to die for his enemies. To love them to death. To love them into life. This call to love is great um, until it gets tested. I'll give you a big one. Big one for our church. I'm going to put it right into our church, politics. Um, we're, we're, we're an eclectic church. We're a geographically spread out church around our county. I found a website recently where you can go and you can type in an address and it will tell you... Um, how many Democrats or how many Republicans live within your kind of immediate neighborhood to talk about, are you like in a political bubble or not? So I, I grabbed one address from someone in our church that lives on State Street here in Bellingham, and probably unsurprisingly to you, it's 87% Democrat. Now, the only thing I was surprised is it didn't say like 97% Democrat. So it said it was 87% Democrat. Then I grabbed someone's address that lives in Linden, 
83% Republican. Now, I'm sure that's never going to cause any issues for us to love one another, right? That's our church. That's our church. Let me give you a bit of a gut check. I'll, give, I'll, I'll apply it personally, but let's do a little bit of a gut check. In light of a text like this, it calls us to love one another in the most countercultural way possible. How well do I love those with whom I disagree with politically? How well have I been doing that? What do I think about them? How do, what do I feel? What do I say? How do I interact? How well do I love those with whom I disagree with politically? I love the way Scott Saul says it in his book, Befriend. I would recommend Befriend. I would recommend Jesus Outside the Line. Scott Saul just has some great insights. He says this, If I feel more of a kindred solidarity with those who share my politics but not my faith, then I feel with those who share my faith but not my politics, what does it say about me? Oh, please, put it through whatever grid you need to put it through. But, but just this, like, the command to love is great until it gets real. And then it gets hard. Because it's so countercultural. We're not being trained to love like this, but we are trained in Christ to love like this. Those who are loved well really can love well. When I worked as a designer... Um, and doing brand strategy, and we're developing something for a company, we would definitely do work with demographics, um, but what we typically focused on was psychographics, was, was a lot louder for us. And, and so it's, it's values and attitudes and hobbits and pra- uh, 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 hobbies and practices and stuff like that. And so, for example, like just to explain, it would be a 26-year-old and a 67-year-old that both ride Harleys probably have more in common than two 26-year-olds where one does and one doesn't. It's kind of that sort of approach, like what makes somebody really tick? You know, what's their affiliation? Here's where I'm going with this. Affiliation with Jesus is meant to be more central than anything else. Jesus is meant to be louder in our affections towards others, in our connection with others than anyone else. Jesus is the one that really helps us love others when we don't want to because he loved us even though he disagreed with us even though we were enemies to him he still loved us and when that happens like something really amazing can happen and that's why i love love being placed in the context of a local church with life on life reality um, is that enemies become friends d.a carson i've i've quoted this before i just think it's so helpful ideally the church itself is not made up of natural friends that's what the world does. This is why we're called to a countercultural. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know, if you think about the defining marks of our, of our culture and this call to love is, is so countercultural to love like Christ loves, you know, things like cancel culture. We're just going to shut you down and we're going to be done with you when you do or say something that we don't like. All the pundits and polarization where we, 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 we are blind to our, our own deficiencies and our ideologies and our political platforms. And what we do is we, we puff up the things that we think are best and we demonize 
someone else that has a different political affiliation or a different ideology. We try to find the very worst about them and we try to, and we really ignore what's, what's still growing in us. We assume the worst with those we disagree with. We, there's just slander and gossip. I mean, this is, these are the marks of our culture. So church, let's not settle to love like our culture. That's walking in darkness. That's verses nine and 11. It's stumbling and bumbling along where we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others. We're, uh, the, the closing prayer we're gonna use today as we do almost every week is by Scotty Smith. And there's one portion I wanna quote here and my, my, my plea really is let it, let it be our prayer as a church. By the powerful gospel, make us great lovers. By your mercy and grace, give us love for all the saints. Help us to love one another as Jesus loves us, the surest and most necessary mark of our discipleship. Tear down our divisions. Rescue us from our prejudices. Eradicate our petulance and pettiness. Demonstrate the difference the gospel makes in our worship, in our conflicts, in seasons of disconnect and delight. And I love this last line. Don't let us ever get used to loving poorly. Those who are loved well, we can love well. It's, it's counterculture. It's also costly. I'm gonna, I'll speed this up, but it's, but it's costly. I was hanging out with a friend recently, and uh, she brought up an issue that we truly disagree with one another. It was around the, it's kind of one of our culture's third rail issues around human sexuality and, and gender identity, um, and we really disagree. And in some ways, it would, it would really, it would just be easier to not be friends or to not talk, but easier isn't always better. Um, Scott Sauls in, in his book, Befriend Us, the last time I'll quote him, he says this, I think it's the last time, he says this, he says, real love, real friendship is vulnerable and risky and costly and discomforting and disquieting and agitating like sandpaper sometimes. I was asking this question to some people recently, um, what Christians are hardest for you to love? Like for you to be patient with, for you to want the best for, for you to, 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 to endure with. For me, here's the, the Christians that are they're harsh for me to love, people that disagree with me. Just kidding. I asked Dane, came into Dane's office a couple days ago and I said, Dane, what Christians are hardest for you to love? And, and he said, people that think they're always right. I asked Sierra on staff. I, I jumped into her office, and she knew what I was doing. You know, she's, this the, if you know Sierra, she has the kindest smile. And I asked her that question. I said, what Christians are hardest for you to love? She goes, people that pop into my office while I'm working to ask me questions for sermon illustrations. She didn't do that. She said, when people aren't gentle with their answers, and gentle with others. And at the time, she was wearing a sweatshirt that said this, your brokenness is welcome here. This is hard. It's hard for her to, to want to love people that aren't being gentle with others. This might be one of the more dangerous things I, I ask you to do, but I, th I think it's important what Christians in our church are hardest for you to love. Bring Jesus into that moment. Bring Jesus into that relationship. Map Jesus onto that relationship. Remember the quality of his love that loved his enemies, that gave his life to welcome them in. 
Think about the implications of this type of love in our world. Imagine what it would be like to love this way in in political debates. Imagine marriages and classmates and coworkers having somebody that comes in with this type of love, this, this, that have been loved well by Christ and they're learning to love others well. It would change the world. And that's what the hope of verse 10 is. That when we love like this, we're abiding in the light. We're not ushering in the kingdom, but we're, we're running parallel to the kingdom, breaking in that is a world of love. When we abide in the light, we are broadcasting the kingdom and we are showing off the love of the king. This other phrase in verse 10, there is no cause for stumbling. In the New Testament, when that's used, it's always used in this, uh, this sort of sense, that which causes someone else to stumble. No doubt when we don't walk in love, we ourselves stumble, but it's actually saying when we, when we don't love well or when we love well, we don't cause anyone else to stumble, that we set the temperature in the room, that, that, that we're like the, the, the thermostat that, that changes the climate and, oh, our world needs that change. When we love like we've been loved, Jesus changes the world. And it's guaranteed, right? Verse eight, hate won't win. The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And we can get in on that. Those who are loved well, those who are loved well can love well. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, what a, what a privilege and a gift to simply be loved by the great lover of our souls who loved us to the end. Thank you that as we are loved by Christ, we learn, we're trained, we're conditioned, we're freed to love others well. We thank you for the simplicity of this call, the way this, that question, is it loving, could could help us pause before we click, help us pause before we speak. God, thank you for the evidences of it, not just how it's hard to do, but it's real and it's happening that that people are loving each other and there's so many stories and I pray that you would encourage us this week to, to just open our eyes to where we see your love through others working out in our community. So we struggle to love. What we need most is not to work harder, but to remember how we've been loved by Christ. Thank you that the darkness, it's already giving way to the light that's coming. And in that we rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.